This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As children return to school after the Christmas break, Boris Johnson grapples with an unprecedented wave of COVID cases. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. So anyone who thinks our battle with COVID is over, I'm afraid, is profoundly wrong. This is a moment for the utmost caution. The UK started the new year with record-breaking cases of COVID-19, with more than 200,000 in a day for the first time this week. Despite thousands of employees unable to return to work as they isolate and hospitals declaring critical incidents with staff shortages, Boris Johnson is holding off from introducing more restrictions. But as the government comes in for criticism for failing to provide enough testing for the new term, many are wondering if Boris Johnson's government has a handle on this latest variant. So how does Westminster's response compare to the rest of the UK and even Europe? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. to school this week and ministers are urging further measures to be put in place to stop the spread of Omicron among young people. To get the latest, I spoke to Sonia Soda, the chief leader writer for The Observer and a Guardian columnist. Sonia, it's lovely to have you on. Let's talk about hospitals first, which are struggling with many declaring critical incidents and we're seeing reports that some people are being told not to call an ambulance when ill. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson said he would not bring in further COVID restrictions and acknowledged that some hospitals would feel overwhelmed in the coming weeks. Does it seem odd to you that he's accepting that a pretty dire situation in the health service is about to happen? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on here. Um, Boris Johnson politically is in a situation where if he, even if he wanted to introduce further restrictions because they're, you know, they're scientifically justified and certainly there are some scientists who are arguing uh, for that, not if not for full lockdown, but for some further measures. You know, his party is not in a place where they appear willing to support him on that. So there's an element of, well, did he even have the choice to do this politically before Christmas? And then the other thing is that there's a real timing issue so with a virus that's incredibly fast spreading like Omicron I think if you were going to take measures to try and limit its impact on the NHS the time to do that scientists were saying was really you know before Christmas or before New Year's Day and it does feel like 
given the level of infections that we've got in the UK at the moment, there's a certain amount that's just baked in in terms of what the NHS is going to face over the next three or four weeks. And I think there's no question that it is going to be incredibly grim and that people are absolutely going to um, not receive the standard of care that they would normally be able to expect from the NHS as a result of this. And Johnson said on Tuesday that he wants the country to just ride out the wave. But if you were medical staff in hospital, how do you think many of these people will be feeling about this this language that they're being urged to just get on with it and get through uh, compromised standards of care the best they can? I think they'll feel quite angry and and you can see why. So it's been a really, really difficult sort of 20 months or so for the NHS. I think it's important to stress this isn't just something that hit the NHS with the pandemic. The pandemic has made capacity issues in the NHS much more difficult. The NHS was going into the pandemic with a decade of underfunding. You know, the excessive Conservative governments have not funded the NHS to the tune that it needs to cope with an ageing population. So the NHS was already really under strain. And then we've had this pandemic which means that you know you've seen NHS staff working in some really terrible conditions extremely traumatic work you know working at a time when people are dying of Covid when their relatives can't come in uh, to visit them and um, you know I think just to sort of say well we need to ride the wave and it's going to be pretty awful for a lot of staff they really feel like they're at the end of their tether and I, I don't think those comments of the Prime Minister will have gone down that well. Turning to schools and the situation there, the first week of term has started again, despite staggering numbers of coronavirus cases. What kind of challenges are they facing now as students come back from the holidays? And um, are the measures that the government's put in place enough to tackle the, the situation? Well, it's it's very similar to the NHS, and, and I read um, one newspaper was reporting that there are, that, you know, this week there are 1.2 million Britons self-isolating because they've got COVID. Now, that has huge implications to the NHS, but obviously that's a lot of teachers and school staff as well. So it has huge implications for schools. And the real challenge for schools is how to deliver that business as usual with lots of staff off. And, you know, I think it puts schools in a really, really difficult position. What about vaccinations for children? Because we only started vaccinating secondary school pupils in September and just recently it was announced that um, extremely vulnerable 5 to 11-year-olds will be eligible for the vaccine. But we've seen reports that parents are finding it quite tough to get those children a vaccine slot. Why was it easier to get the rollout going for adults, do you think? That's a really interesting question. And um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know why the vaccine rollout for children has been sort of less smooth and less well organised and why fewer vaccine centres appear to be doing vaccines for for the under 18s. I think you're right to say that the the rollout has been slower. The decision to extend vaccines to children um, happened later in this country than other countries. Now, why did we start that rollout of vaccines to children so late? And it is because from a health perspective, there's a finer balance between the very, very rare risks to young people, particularly boys, um, of getting the vaccine versus, you know, getting COVID because COVID is much, much less serious than children and young people. But when it comes to education and the educational benefits and keeping the education system going, it does feel to me like that's a benefit that the government hasn't really taken into account when deciding on vaccine rollout in a way that I think actually some other countries have done. And as you've been talking about, we're two years into this pandemic now, but the government is still struggling with issues such as ventilation in classrooms and testing, even though we know up to one in 20 secondary school students were infected with the virus at the moment. So why do you think 
there's no robust system in place to ensure education isn't disrupted. And do you think parents are justified to be feeling a bit aggrieved by the idea that schools might have to be shut again, potentially because of staff shortages, even if there isn't a, a national lockdown? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, parents should be feeling quite aggrieved about it. And I just think, you know, the Department for Education is one of the less functional departments in Whitehall, in my view. I write a lot about education policy. I think it really suffered from having the worst education secretary I can ever remember in Gavin Williamson. And he was in post for a big chunk of the pandemic. And, you know, not only were there two sort of, I think, quite avoidable um, total disasters with exam results, um, I think you really really saw a lack of organization and planning in the department for education around the pandemic and that has really continued on even since sort of Gavin Williamson has has lost the post so I just think the department for education have got an absolutely terrible track record of taking mitigating measures and doing long-term planning Um, you know we we could all foresee that there was going to be a chance that that um, there was another wave of the pandemic that meant that lots of pupils were off with COVID and off self-isolating so why have haven't these measures been planned for and taken? I, I, I don't have any answer to that, apart from the fact that I think that, you know, the Department for Education has been absolutely dreadful. And while students were off uh, for a break over the Christmas holidays, um, Boris Johnson himself also managed to take some time out. He spent Christmas between Checkers and Number 10, and we barely saw him at all over this uh, um, Christmas period that was filled with so much uh, covid Do you think this break over the Westminster recess period could have um, allowed Boris Johnson to have a bit of a a, a reprieve from the people in his party who were really gunning for him before Christmas and potentially wanting to challenge him for the leadership? Well, I personally think if it was a reprieve, it will be a temporary one. I don't think it's the case that sort of a you know, 10 days, a couple of weeks off over Christmas and the new year will mean that Conservative MPs will come back with their concerns about Boris Johnson allayed. I think the stuff that we were seeing in the run up to Christmas, the anger that Conservative MPs were expressing about Boris Johnson after a series of scandals, first around Owen Patterson, um, then around the Downing Street parties, revelations about that, that sort of stuff marks a break and an irrevocable break, I think. I think once people start having those feelings, it's very difficult to go back to a Conservative Party where backbenchers are like, you know, Boris Johnson, we've got to stick with him because he's the one who won us the 2019 election. So I I think it won't feel quite as visceral when people come back after the break, but I don't think that anger from his backbenchers will have dissipated. And um, so I think that those the, the internal conflict within the Conservative Party is going to define, you know, the next two or three months of politics it's not going away but he has managed to make it through the christmas period without introducing more restrictions um which will no doubt keep some of the libertarian wing of his party happy won't it or are these people never happy I mean, I think there's an extent to which they'll move on to the next thing. Um, So uh, yes, in some ways, I think if the data had looked a lot more certain before Christmas, we are very lucky as a country that Omicron has turned out to be milder than Delta. It would have been absolutely terrible if it had turned out to be both more transmissible and just as serious. You know, we would have, we would have been in a lockdown. I think if if that's if that's the way it, it, it looked like it was going before Christmas, so we're very lucky. But also, I think Boris Johnson will be thinking that politically he was quite lucky too. And what about in the eyes of the public? 
I mean, maybe, but I think if you look at the polls going into Christmas, um, we were really starting to see some very consistent leads for Labour. And actually, there there was a poll after Christmas uh, that showed that too. And I also think that 2022 is going to be a difficult year politically for Boris Johnson, not just with his party, but with the country. So we're going to see the inquiry, the COVID inquiries kick off um, in the spring. And that is going to go over a lot of old grounds about the very serious mistakes that Johnson made in the earlier stages of of this pandemic. You know, we're going to be facing a cost of living crisis um, with people really feeling the bite from rising energy prices, from that universal credit cut at the end of last year. And there were going to be more problems on Brexit as well, that the problem over Northern Ireland hasn't gone away and that is going to continue to be in the news. So I think, you know, possibly that, you know, people will have mellowed a little over Christmas um, in relation to that very specific thing of the Downing Street parties. But, you know, there is a lot more problematic stuff for Boris Johnson to come this year and I can't see his ratings recovering unless something quite extraordinary happens with the pandemic. And while Boris Johnson's ratings have been falling, Keir Starmer's have been rising. This is the first time since 2008 that a Labour leader has come out on top in a poll of who would make the most capable Prime Minister by 13%. In a speech in Birmingham on Tuesday morning, Starmer outlined how he planned to stay on top until the next election. What did you make of that speech? Tax rises are coming in April. Too many people don't feel safe in their own streets. And good luck to anyone trying to get a quick GP appointment. It was good in some ways, in the sense that, you know, he sort of talked about a contract with the British public. It's very clear that he's trying to sort of position himself in almost, I guess, quite a Tony Blair way um, in, in, in some ways. But I think it's possible to sort of overplay the importance of one speech in January 2022. It's not a speech that many, you know, will, will cross the radar of very many voters at all. You know, it might sort of contribute through sort of seeing it a bit on the news and stuff to sort of um, people's kind of growing perceptions of Keir Starmer. But I mean, I think the thing for Starmer is, so the poll lead is really good news, but it all it is is a window of opportunity for Labour because my view is, is that it reflects mostly the way the public are feeling about the Conservatives rather than the way that voters are feeling about Labour. And in many ways, that is exactly what you would expect, um, you know, just two years out of a general election. People aren't that, voters naturally aren't that tuned in to hearing what the leader of the opposition's got to say particularly when you've had like you know literally 20 months of national crisis it's very hard for the leader of the opposition to get heard in the next two to three years they're going to be make or break for the Labour Party and Keir Starmer in the sense that he's got to communicate to voters what his vision for Britain is and personally I think that's less about kind of long you know half an hour 40 minute speeches that no member of the public's ever gonna sort of listen to in its entirety and more about really crisp sharp messaging and, you know, a couple of really high profile policies that are very symbolic about what type of prime minister you're going to be. And I can understand why they haven't done that yet in this parliament, because I think it would just get lost, to be honest, in COVID. But I think in the next two years, that's that's his challenge. And that's what he's got to do. So I think, you know, Labour will only sort of win in a really positive sense in the next general election, if they've got that message really honed. And if you know, if you were to ask someone on the on the street, oh, you know, what do you reckon Keir Starmer stands for, if they're able to sort of reflect something back vaguely, um, that is what the Labour Party want them to think. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Sonia Soda, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. After the break, we'll look at how the rest of the UK and Europe are choosing to tackle the latest COVID-19 surge. 
We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason. Many were hoping for a calm and relaxing Christmas after last year in lockdown, but Omicron put those plans on hold as it made its way into Europe. Despite travel bans, vaccine boosters and making face masks compulsory again, Britain is currently facing record-breaking numbers of coronavirus cases every day. In the UK, we see the devolved government straying from the path chosen by Westminster, with Boris Johnson taking a much more relaxed approach than Mark Drakeford in Wales, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Paul Given in Northern Ireland. But it's not just here that we're struggling to contain the virus. Many European countries are at loggerheads with the public as they try to stop the variant from spreading. The Guardian's political correspondent, Peter Walker, spoke to our Europe correspondent, John Henley, and Scotland editor, Severin Carroll, to analyse the differences in restrictions across the continent. So, John, Sev, thank you very, very much for joining me on the pod. Um, John, let's start with you and the situation in Europe. We started to get word of this new Omicron variant kind of at the end of November. And straight away, quite a few countries took action by banning travel to several African countries, which most of these restrictions have now gone. But can you bring us up to date about what restrictions are in place in Europe? The UK got the Omicron variant earlier uh, than much of the continent. And matters were kind of somewhat complicated here by the fact that many countries were either still in the middle of, I'm thinking of France here, or had just got over a very big kind of wave of the previous Delta variant. So authorities, you know, in a, in a raft of EU countries were really scrambling to get ready uh, for Omicron. And as you say, the, the travel ban was quite short-lived, but since then, case numbers have really started to soar in a lot of countries across Europe. And so there's, there's quite a lot of quite strict new measures have come in. The strictest, I suppose, of all um, was Austria, um, which went back into a full lockdown before Christmas, um, but then came out of it for people who were vaccinated. But vac unvaccinated people in Austria are still, in theory at least, um, supposed to stay indoors and uh, in their homes uh, unless they have a kind of a, you know, a, a real excuse and a necessary excuse to, to go out. So the Austrian thing where you basically have a lockdown only for unvaccinated people, I mean, how's that gone down? There's been quite a few protests, I mean, not just there, but also 
in other parts of Europe too. There were big protests. Um, there were quite big protests in Austria, a uh, maximum of about sort of 50,000 people um, over a couple of a couple of weekends um, when that was introduced. We've also seen quite big protests more recently in Germany. There were about 35,000 people on the streets this weekend. Quite big protests in Belgium and particularly in the Netherlands and some violence. It's clearly true to say that as the pandemic kind of nears, you know, it's, it's, we're about to go into our second year. Uh, And there is clearly a sense of fatigue and uh, of people just being fed up. Um, And it seems to be more uh, severe in some countries than others. And in terms of the way that governments are trying to push back against this, I mean, the health advice has very, very much been that obviously, if you have two vaccinations, that's good. But a booster vaccine is the best way to make sure your Omicron symptoms are as limited as they can be. Around Europe, John, how's that been going? Because there's been a lot of kind of to and fro between the UK and Europe as to who's been vaccinating the quicker or the better. It's quite remarkable. I was just looking at the at the graphs for it this morning. And exactly as for the first vaccine rollout of first and second doses, Britain shot up to kind of 50% quite fast. And it managed to do the same for the uh, for booster shots. And so as a result, Britain is now about 50% boosted, as it were. And the rest of the EU is varying between kind of 35 and, and 40% round, you know, a few percentage points lower. But Britain seems to be very good at getting out of the, you know, off the mark fast, but then seems to slow down. One of the other things that governments have to think about is the impact of uh, Omicron. In fact, it spread so fast in just keeping a lot of people off work. Um, and in the UK, there's been this debate about how long the self-isolation period should be. It's down to seven days now. There's been some talk about reducing it down to five or stuff like that. What are other European countries doing? Yeah, I mean, very similar moves, really. I mean, the, the US was the first uh, to go down this route uh, at the very beginning of, of, of last week. Um, and Britain followed a couple of days later, as did Spain. Uh, Greece and Portugal have since followed suit, as has France. Yeah, I think, as you say, Peter, it's, you know, it's clearly, this clearly reflects a kind of a judgment that the Omicron variant, although it's much more transmissible than previous variants, doesn't appear appear to be producing such severe symptoms that's confronted governments with the need to kind of you know make a judgment call and 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 walk a kind of a tightrope it's kind of a trade-off it's a balancing act really between doing the the best that they could in in the best of all possible worlds to sort of slow the spread of this highly transmissible variant while at the same time keeping uh, economies and societies open and making sure that you know there isn't a short a, you know potentially fatal shortage of staff in in essential public services like hospitals and public transport as well as in, in shops and that kind of thing basically a lot of european nations have been puzzling how to deal with it and have come to different points of view and in the uk it's actually the same Sev, to turn to you i mean in the past it says it's fair to say that whilst obviously health policy between the uk nations is a matter for them in some earlier parts of the uh, of the pandemic, um, the the four governments have stuck reasonably closely together. But with Omicron, it's quite different. I mean, talk me through the differences, particularly say between Scotland and England, and and why do you think there have been so many differences this time? Hello, Peter. So the collaboration between the different governments of the UK. So bear in mind, of course, we have four governments responsible for health policy. There's the Westminster government for England, the Welsh for Wales, Scotland for Scotland, and 
Stormont for Northern Ireland, have been largely in lockstep for the last two years on how to approach the medical emergency, if you like, about uh, using vaccinations or the uh, scientific evidence, epidemiological evidence. But you're right, there have been differences about how to deal with this when it comes to um, social policy, the questions about physical distancing, about uh, what businesses can and can't do, where the public should be and shouldn't be, and the use of masks. So there are periods where the Scottish and UK governments have been pretty much in lockstep. But the differences between Edinburgh and London actually began to emerge quite quickly in the first year of the pandemic. Nicola Sturgeon would, from the outset, tend to be more conservative in her approach when it came to what businesses could and couldn't do and physical distancing and so on. As things currently stand, there are still now significant differences between the Westminster government's approach in England and the Scottish approach and indeed the Welsh approach. So in Scotland, we still have a 10-day isolation period. And even if you had a negative test after seven days, unlike in England, you would still have to remain under self-isolation conditions. If you go to a pub now, you have to um, sit down and you can't mingle in the same way as you can in England. In England, it seems to be a much more laissez-faire approach. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, whilst you say the support is obviously quite good, it's quite different, I guess, from people being able to watch different rules in France or uh, Italy. If you're a Scottish person near the English uh, border and you can maybe travel 10 miles or, you know, see your neighbours almost having a lot of liberties, which you don't, do, does it create any resentment or does it almost create the sense of, well, we're do thing, doing things in a slightly, uh, slightly better way? I think the latter. I, I think most people who li- living along the border will actually be um, comfortable with the fact there are some differences. Now, there's no evidence that there are you know, restive townspeople in Coldstream getting really annoyed about what's happening across the border in Berwick-upon-Tweed. My suspicion is is that people living in those communities are actually just getting on with life the way they would normally, and it's not causing much concern or anxiety. And to talk about masks, which in England certainly is quite a politicised thing, I should probably ask you both this. I mean, John, around Europe, there's a lot of countries which have notably stricter mask laws than England currently does, not least wearing them uh, out of doors. Is this a controversial thing? Is it politicised when it comes to kids wearing them in schools? Or do people in most countries just accept it as, you know, part of life at the moment? It's not universal across Europe, this this question of masks in schools, um, particularly the the Scandinavian, notably Sweden, uh, but also Norway, uh, don't have masks in schools. Um, it was actually quite interesting to see the backlash over masks in secondary schools in England this week, uh, because in fact, on on you know, in several countries on the continent, um, masks have been mandatory in primary schools uh, for many months now. It may be as the pressure ups on the unvaccinated that we start to see more of a more of a backlash. And in terms of masks, um, Scotland and England have had slightly different regimes. I mean, Scotland has been a bit more pro mask. Uh, Sev, is this also something that just people um, accept as part of the anti-Omicron measures? 
Broadly, yes. I mean, we've had this mandate to wear masks on public transport in force now for months, and it's broadly accepted. There's also a mandate to wear masks. Of course, it's not legally enforced or enforced by the police, but to wear um, masks in uh, shops and other public venues. That isn't entirely uh, wholly observed, it has to be said. Broadly, people are adhering to what's going on. Now, the um question i think for the scottish government is very much going to be how much more can the population bear coming into 2022 coming into two years of the pandemic i expect there'll be a lot of debate in the scottish parliament about today around this issue about whether we now need to treat omicron as a uh, just like the, the flu or a common cold in the way that some epidemiologists and virologists have suggested that soon the uh, COVID-19 variants will become a lot less severe and will have to be treated as a kind of background noise in the health service, if you like. There's still quite a lot of differences, not just between Scotland and England, between England and basically the other devolved nations. Um, In a kind of broadest sense, Is this just a factor of different leaders interpreting the same scientific evidence in different ways? Or more widely, do they betray perhaps a different political stance? I I think both, actually. Look, I mean, one of the things that is very important to say from the outset is that um, at an official level, the uh, cooperation and collaboration between all the different administrations is very, very close. So, for instance, all the chief medical officers of the four uh, UK nations or governments are in regular contact, as are their officials. They also all have observer status to SAGE meetings and briefings. They get all the same evidence that SAGE produces they see the same epidemiology, they see the same data, and they share and contribute that. And at official level inside the governments, there is close cooperation and discussion. But there are nonetheless political differences in the way the governments view the best way to attack these particular problems. And those are ideological. One of the most important differences in the way the different administrations of the UK behave when it comes to uh, policies around social distancing or businesses and physical distancing controls is that much of it is defined by the political atmosphere or the political makeup of the party in power. Now, the Scottish National Party is a largely very unified party. Nicola Sturgeon has very few internal critics when it comes to policy around COVID. And that's very different to the Conservative Party in London. Boris Johnson has a much more restive party. It's much more divided. He has a much more vigorous and combative libertarian branch of the party, if you like. He is also politically and intellectually much keener on uh, minimal state intervention and minimal state control. And that culturally is quite an important difference because in Scotland and in Wales, I think broadly, there's greater public buy-in to the idea that the government is there in order to protect the population and state intervention or state mandate is more broadly accepted. One final, um, if slightly broad uh, question for you, 
both. I mean, we're getting to the kind of two year mark for COVID. And we're in a position where Omicron, probably even more than at earlier times, forces governments to make quite difficult choices between, you know, health services and the economy and people's lives. Uh, So John, starting with you, do you think people around Europe, it's a very kind of broad question, trust their governments on this? The answer is yes, um, but patience is certainly running thin. I mean, I think we're beginning to see um, a, a you know real genuine fatigue with this, and I think it's quite legitimate to ask how much longer people will put up with these kind of constraints. And Sev, I mean, you are talking about the fact that Scottish people in general are quite accepting in this quite community spirited way. But presumably, if there is evidence that the virus is getting milder over time, that sense of community spiritedness has a sell-by date, maybe? I, th- I think, that, I mean, obviously, yes. People's patience and their resilience will start to be worn away. And, the, you know, we, we have to deal with soon the return of children to school. And people also want to start returning to work at the same time. And if we end up having significant restraints on people's capacity to resume an ordinary form of life, then resentments and irritation could become more manifest. Well, there is a lot for a lot of government ministers to think about in these coming weeks. Uh, Severin, John, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Peter Walker speaking to John Henley and Severin Carroll. That's all from us this week. For anyone wanting to get the latest on what we know about the Omicron variant, Listen to Wednesday's episode of Today in Focus. And for more information on why people are being reinfected with COVID-19, The Guardian Science Editor Ian Sample answers your questions on tomorrow's episode of Science Weekly. You can find both of them wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure, of course, to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland looks into the fate of American democracy with Congressman Jamie Raskin, who led the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump after the January the 6th Capitol riots last year. For now, I want to thank our guests, Peter Walker, John Henley, Severin Carroll and Sonia Soda. The producer was Amelia Janssen. I'm Marina Mason. I hope you've had a safe start to the year and thank you, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.